Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and I thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. In this episode, Queen Elizabeth II passes away as Prince Charles becomes King Charles III. Will the war in Ukraine throw large parts of the developed world into recession? And will Ukraine's biggest supporters stay the course? Threats of political violence a year and a half after January 6th are now focusing on individual lawmakers. One case in point is Washington State Congressperson Pamela J. Powell. Bans against abortion by some state legislatures are beginning to be rethought. And you didn't think we'd get by without talking about that former president, did you? No, not Barack Obama, who called his wife fine. A different one. First, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. She reigned over the United Kingdom for 70 years and passed away at age 96. Before I came to the UK to live, I really didn't understand the incredible reverence so many here had for her. After all, the United States came into existence in part to get away from the very concept of monarchy. And still, a good number of Americans are mourning her passing as well. Of course, there are those who will not forget the fact that she presided over an empire that routinely pillaged countries of color for generations. That aside, the real question is whether the new king, Charles III, will prove popular enough to maintain the so-called firm into succeeding generations. You know, there's a lot of back and forth here, particularly among people of color, not just black people, not just Africans, Asians, and others, about the legacy of Queen Elizabeth II and about the future of the monarchy. There are many who argue that the years of oppression, the years of empire, etc., etc., stain the legacy of the royal family, Queen Elizabeth included. I would say, while you need to know, and people both here in Britain and in the United States need to know about that legacy, they also need to know that Queen Elizabeth presided over massive changes, massive changes in British society. For me, as someone who is against the death penalty, the abolition of capital punishment was an extraordinary accomplishment for the British public, and it was presided over by Queen Elizabeth. Also, changes in inclusivity, which you can't deny if you're here for any length of time, also happened under her reign. So there is good, there is bad, as there are in almost all areas of life. To be honest, I never gave a great deal of thought to the British monarchy for a very, very long time. They were just sort of there. If ever there was a time that I thought the monarchy might die out, it was during that period when Prince Charles and Lady Diana split up and several years later after she died. I failed to realize then how central the British royal family was to the UK's sense of itself. The trappings of empire are long gone. And even now, some Caribbean countries have or are moving away from the traditional Commonwealth model. I get the sense that the Queen was the glue that kept both the UK and the Commonwealth together. We'll see if the new monarch can maintain 
that continuity. As the UK mourns the loss of its queen, it and the rest of Europe are facing daunting headwinds as the war in Ukraine continues. As the Ukrainian military has made some substantial and undeniable gains against their Russian adversaries, there seems to be no end to that war in sight. Yet inflation, skyrocketing energy prices, and the risk of recession seem to be hitting Europe the hardest. While some European leaders talk about growing their economies, the plain fact is their economies are slowing. The European Central Bank, which oversees the 19 countries that use the euro, just raised its interest rate by three quarters of 1%, its biggest ever increase. That, of course, is to try and slow inflation. However, the elephant in the room is clearly energy prices. In the UK, prior to a promised government intervention, energy prices were scheduled to rise by an eye-watering 80% in October. Now, imagine for a second that there was a union in the UK, the US, or anywhere on earth that demanded an 80% increase for its members. People would be up in arms, particularly the conservative media. I don't care where you're talking about. They'd go crazy. But in the UK, 80% seemed at least to be the cost of energy. And people at first did not bat an eye until people began to say that they could not, absolutely could not afford it. And not just poor people, because a lot of times poor people get ignored. Middle class people here in the UK are saying we can't afford that kind of increase. And there was an additional increase coming at the first of next year. To varying degrees, European governments are blaming their collective dependence on Russian energy, specifically natural gas, for the rise in prices. The real question is whether the steadfast support for Ukraine, which we've experienced up until now, will waver in the face of staggering price rises and supply chain problems that more and more people are starting to attribute to the war. Fact is, some of these issues are just as much pandemic as they are traced to the war. It's also true that some economies are weathering the storm better than others. Yet in Europe, the U.S. and other developed countries and economies, it's the poor that take it on the chin. I'm going to keep talking about that. The poor take it on the chin. At the same time, the working poor, in particular, are rarely told that it's them that keep these economies afloat through a combination of production and consumption. Maybe one day soon, folks who are impacted by the ups and downs of the world's economies will help construct a different model that works better for everyone. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't know the model, but I'm sure in a succeeding generation, there will be someone, and it won't necessarily be a rich person, but it will be someone who comes up with an answer. Up next, there are signs the January 6th Capitol insurrection is only the beginning of right-wing threats of violence against those they oppose. We'll explore the case of Congresswoman Pramila J. Powell. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley.
Welcome back to The Intersection. Thanks for staying with us. Pramila J. Powell is a three-term member of the House from the state of Washington, specifically Seattle. She's an unabashed progressive. According to the Washington Post, she and her husband have endured a nonstop tirade of invective and just plain threats and harassment at the hands of people who disagree with her politics. She is, after all, the chair of the House Progressive Caucus. It also turns out that one of the men who was driving past her house hurling insults was carrying a gun. This one incident seemed like a pattern, as her neighbors later said they'd seen the car and this man and others driving by several times before. This one incident would be bad enough, but threats against members of Congress have been escalating steadily since 2017. I don't have the statistics as the ideology of those making threats, but my anecdotal guess would be a majority would be right-wing. Remember, the men who plotted to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer were opposed to her mask mandate during the height of COVID. Of course, there's January 6th, which can only be described as a fascist attempt to overtone, overturn, that is, the results of an election. I don't use the word fascist lightly. The common point of people who adhere to a fascist ideology is their willingness to use violence to achieve their end. This is not new, nor is political violence new. What is new is the proliferation of militias, paramilitaries, conspiracy theorists, and just some crazies, in some cases, who believe they're saving America from them. Them could be people whose ideology doesn't fit their own, people from other countries, people of other colors, whoever may threaten their worldview or construct. When it gets to the point of threatening lawmakers, it's a bridge way too far. Even worse, this brand of fascism is supported by some members of Congress who shall remain nameless for the purposes of this podcast. There are those with a great deal more knowledge than I who have been warming, warning that is, about creeping fascism in America for a while now. I have to admit, I was a bit skeptical. Yet January 6th and subsequent events, including what happened to Pramila J. Powell, have me thinking a bit differently. The best way to stop this creeping fascism is to empower a nation of critical thinkers who can stop the creep of this deadly and ugly ideology. It's not going to go away from protests. It's not going to go away from doing some kind of surgery on the minds of people who believe in all this. They believe it's their First Amendment right to advocate violence. They believe that. I'm not here necessarily to dissuade them from their belief system. I am, however, a certain adherent to the idea that my brother taught me once, which is the way to counter bad speech is with better speech. And better speech, ladies and gentlemen, comes from critical thinking. Thinking about issues, working them out in your own mind, and acting based on what you realize. And of course, that means without any hint 
of violence whatsoever. Next, abortion bans come back to bite in some states, and if that former president thought the appointment of a special master was some type of victory, he's not out of the woods yet. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. It's a given that state legislatures controlled by hardline anti-abortionists have been emboldened by the Supreme Court's gutting of Roe v. Wade. Many states have passed or are trying to pass near total bans on abortion, even in the case of rape or incest. And yet, because the principal concern of a politician is getting reelected, some legislators who champion tough anti-abortion laws are now having second thoughts. Consider the following. In South Carolina, Republicans failed to pass a near total abortion ban during an extended legislative session last week, unable to agree on whether to include exceptions for rape and incest. In West Virginia, a recent special session over similar legislation ended in gridlock. And that's not all. According to the Washington Post, efforts to craft and pass a nationwide abortion ban have hit a wall. There were some efforts to pass a so-called heartbeat ban, which would have prohibited abortions after around six weeks. GOP lawmakers backed away from that one. Some are still advocating for a 15-week ban, but some have gotten off the bus. With the midterm elections coming up fast, there's little likelihood of any federal ban being passed, since it would need 60 votes in the Senate. And even if they got them, remember there's a Democrat in the White House. Two factors are causing GOP lawmakers to hit pause. One, several states wanted to abandon abortion even in the case of rape or incest. All the polling I've seen says an overwhelming majority, that is, of Americans, even those who oppose abortion, want exceptions in those cases. I think Republican overreach has given some lawmakers second thoughts. I believe the other factor is the spate of media reports of people being criminalized for assisting mostly young women obtain abortions. And of course, they still haven't figured out how to stop women from ordering the abortion pill in the mail. These are a number of factors that maybe some of these state legislatures, in their zeal to try and pass abortion bans, did not take into account. I mean, I don't know how they're going to intercept the mail and find out who's receiving abortion pills. And the idea, for example, that a teenager had to cross a state line in order to get a legal abortion is something that is very difficult, I think, for many of these anti-abortionists to fathom. I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know how they're going to get past some of these obstacles. Because, and I've said this many, many times before, Republicans, when they control certain levers of power, have a tendency to overreach to try and do too much, to try and get past the sentiments of the American public. 
And I think this may well be one of those times. Now, maybe it's time to codify a woman's right to choose in federal law. Give them something to think about, these anti-abortion state legislatures. And speaking of something to think about, by now you know a Trump-appointed judge handed him a victory of sorts, by a, and it was given by a judge in Florida. She granted Trump's request for a special master to review documents seized from his home at Mar-a-Lago. This put the Justice Department on the horns of a dilemma. An appeal of the entire ruling would put the matter in the hands of an appeals court with six Trump appointees on it. To decline an appeal would mean a possible long delay in their investigation. In the end, they chose what some might say is a middle path. They asked for a stay of the judge's order and said they would not appeal if the order was reversed. And yet, they weren't finished. And this is a classic, classic example of how Washington, inside the Beltway, actually works. Somebody let it drop that among the documents seized was one that described a foreign government's military defenses and nuclear capabilities, according to media reports. This would be called The Empire Strikes Back if it was a movie. Intelligence officials are described as concerned, as well they should be. And of course, the intelligence community often doesn't comment or utter a mumbling word about these sorts of leakages and the facts of these sort of leakages. Some of this stuff is so closely guarded that only the president, senior cabinet officials, and a near cabinet official could even authorize senior intelligence officials to know of their existence. And yet, this was found in a former president's home. Typically, Trump's lawyers decry the leaking of this material. Yet that's about all they can do is decry. They can't take it back or even deny that the documents exist or that they were found at Donald Trump's home. They can't deny any of that. All they can say is, leak, 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 it's wrong. And maybe it was, but they should have expected it. They should have expected that once a Trump appointed judge, and let me say something about that too, because not all Trump appointed judges follow his line as slavishly as the judge did in this case. There are Trump appointed judges who have, for example, upheld the results of the 2020 election in their individual states. So it's not just about a Trump appointed judge. But the fact of the matter is that that decision to appoint a special master is virtually unprecedented in the life of the nation. So we'll see if Trump's people can come up with something better than, oh my God, it's been a leak. In chess, they call this check. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.